Amen, indeed. If you would turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 112, and then place your finger there and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to be looking at both of those passages this morning as we continue our sermon series dealing with worship. Um, We are uh, going to be wrapping that up pretty soon. Uh, Next week will be our last week, and then next week will be our, sorry, the first part of September, we'll be starting a sermon series looking at four of the minor prophets, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, and so we hope that you will join us for that. You'll, uh, next week, you'll be seeing a reading plan, um, and so we hope that you'll, uh, you'll jump in there for the fall with those, those four minor prophets as we, we look at a part of Scripture that's maybe a little bit uh, underrepresented in our sermons a lot of times. Uh, as you're turning, uh, still looking for Psalm 112 and 2 Corinthians 9, uh, I did want to give you a, couple, a quick update. Last week, I told you um, that Josh Miranda would be having a bone marrow uh, biopsy this last week and ask you to pray for that. Um, Friday, we got news that that bone marrow biopsy came back clean, that he is cancer-free. And uh, super excited about that. Uh, so I wanted to pass that long news along. He appreciates your prayers. Uh, continue to pray for that family. Obviously, his uh, there are several things that still must happen um, in that process as he continues to recover, but uh, we are thankful for that good news, and so I wanted to pass that along to you, uh, our church family. Hopefully by now, though, you have found Psalm 112 um, and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and so uh, these are both rather long passages, so if in the middle of it you need to have a seat, that's fine, but if you would join me in standing as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. Psalm 112, starting with verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. And then turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Again, we're going to read this whole chapter. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints for I know you're ready of your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you, For being so confident, 
So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Father, we do thank you. As Lord, we have already proclaimed your glories and your grace, as we have already remembered your great mercies, as we have thought upon your goodness and your love. Father, we are thankful. Father, I pray that as we as we look at your word this morning, that we would be reminded of the great treasure that we have in you, that we would be reminded of the great promises that we have in you, that it would, it would stir us to great passion and great excitement, and that from that, as an overflowing of your generosity towards us, that we would have a desire to be generous as well. Father, I pray that you would be in your word this morning, that we would find you, that we would know you, and that we would be delighted in you. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As most of you know, uh, many of you who have gathered with us at some point during the summer, we have been looking this summer at the topic of worship, this thing that we have been created for, and this thing that as followers of Jesus Christ that we have been called to. And so because of that, it's important for us to understand worship better. Um, we spoke at the beginning of the summer how many of us, and in fact I would say almost all of us, come to worship with some expectations and some of our own definitions of what that would look like and what that is. And yet, what we see in the Word is that we should come to worship not desiring our own preferences, but rather desiring to serve Him well as He has called us to do. And so in looking at that, we have given ourselves kind of a working definition that we've reminded, uh, that I've reminded of you every week, that worship is placing supreme value upon God. 
that when we live lives that are marked by worship, what we are communicating to Him, what we are communicating back to our own hearts and to others, is that He is our greatest treasure, that He is worth more to us than anything else, and that in everything that we do, we are to worship Him and to make Him known. And we can do that in various ways. The last several weeks, we've been looking at the how How do we worship? We've talked about worshiping through the word, through prayer, through singing, through creativity, our gifts and our passions, our talents, our desires, that there's almost no no end to the, the ways and the avenues that we can bring worship to God through those things. We talked about silence. We talked about last week. We talked about testimony, that we proclaim his value to others as we have experienced it. And this week, we turn our eyes towards worship through generosity. Throughout Scripture, God's people are marked as generous people, whether it be through time, whether it be through their talents and their gifts, whether it be through their resources. God's people are marked as generous in response to Him being so generous to us. So when we talk about worship through generosity, we could say that we are doing so, we are worshiping by placing our resources in his hands. Now, there's a little bit of of a catch there in the sense that we understand as believers that God has given us all things, that he is the one that has blessed us, that all of all that we have can be, we can point back to him and say it's because of his goodness towards us. But our generosity back to him is recognizing that. And saying, okay, you are more valuable than all of this stuff that I have. You are more valuable than my own time. You are what is the true treasure. And so I give all of this back to you and say, what do you want with it? How would you use it? How would you bless others with it? And so we worship through generosity by placing our resources in his hands As I said, we look through Scripture and we can find that this is a mark of the believer. That this idea of worshiping through giving back is something that Scripture describes in multiple places. This morning, we're going to look at Psalm 112 and 2 Corinthians 9 for a depiction of that, starting in Psalm 112. So if you're in 2 Corinthians 9, turn back to Psalm 112 very quickly with me. In Psalm 112... The psalmist is describing a righteous person. He's describing a righteous person. And before we dig too far into that, we have to ask ourselves, who is righteous? Who is perfect? Who is without guilt? And if we are honest with ourselves, when we first hear those words, we should respond in humility that none of us are that none of us are perfect, that all of us have some guilt because all of us have sinned. All of us have done those things that we know are wrong. We've lied, we've disobeyed our parents, we've cheated, we've stolen, we've been angry, we've been jealous, we've had lust in our lives. All of us can identify with one or many or all of those things. And therefore, we are guilty in the law of God. We're not righteous. But at the same time, What 
the scriptures declare, what God declares to us is that when we repent, when we confess those things to him, and we believe that he died for our mistakes, that he rose again on the third day, and we choose to follow him, we make a commitment to follow him, that he is faithful to forgive us of our sins. And, it's, and the scriptures tell us that Jesus takes his righteousness and places, this, places that righteousness on our account. He places it on our account. It would be like a, a billionaire taking all of his funds and transferring them out of his bank and putting them into our bank account. And, we're like, and it would just blow our minds like we had not earned that. We had not deserved it. There was nothing that we could do to repay it. And yet there it sits in our account under our name attributed to us all of this wealth. So much more precious is the righteousness of Christ accounted to those who believe in him. So when we ask the question, who is righteous? Who is that without guilt? Who is without sin? It is those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and committed to follow him. That is the righteous. The psalmist in 112 attempts to describe in part what that individual looks like. It said, he starts off by saying that the righteous fears and delights in the Lord. You look there at verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. In many ways, we would look at that and say, well, the word fear and the word delight don't exactly go together. Those aren't things that we would necessarily put the pieces together um, with those two words. And yet what we see in Scripture is that they are very much two things that go together and are in common. When the, word, when the Scripture talks of fear, it does, not call, it does not recall to mind or it is not pointing towards terror or horror. That's not what fear is meant to mean in Scripture when it's used in this fashion. It's not meant for us to, to recoil in, in great angst. Rather, fear is a deep, deep respect and humility before God. It's understanding who God is, that he is creator, that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, that he is omniscient, he's all-present, or all-knowing, sorry, that he is all of these things, that he is the holder of life and death in his hands, and not just physical life and death, but also spiritual life and death, that he is the judge of all of creation, that in all of these things we, we gain greater understanding of who he is, and it causes us to realize that we are not worthy to be in his presence. It causes us to realize that, that he is grander and greater than anything we could understand. And so there's a humility, there's a respect. But what happens is, is that humility and that respect, as we get to know God more, grows into a delight. It grows into a joy. Because what we find as we draw closer to him, even in humility and respect, is that he is a God of love. He's a God of patience and grace and mercy. He's, got a, he's a father who knows how to give good gifts. And so we begin to find great joy in him. And as our relationship deepens, we begin to delight in him. 
But it's interesting here, the scriptures, the psalmist says that we delight in his, that the righteous delight in his commandments. I shared last week a, a, the shortened version of Melissa and I meeting and us, our relationship growing. And, and I, I shared this and, and I shared again that the more that I've gotten to know her and the more that I have found delight in her presence, the more that I delight to do the things that make her delighted. That the more that I love her, the more that I know her, the more that she gives such great joy to me, the more that I desire to do those things that cause her happiness. In the same way, as we draw closer to God, as we get to know him more and more, and we know his goodness, and we know his grace, and his mercy, and his love, and we know satisfaction, and contentment, and hope, and peace, the more that we experience that in him, the more joy we find in him, the more that the believer will desire to do those things that delight God. And praise be to him that he has given us a book that helps us to understand what that is. He's given us his word to say, this is what I delight in. Come join me in it. The righteous person fears and delights in the Lord. The righteous person trusts the Lord. It says there in verse 6, it says, For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. The righteous man does not experience a perfect life. He does not go through this life without trial and tribulation, without sorrow, without grief. But when those things come, the righteous man is not shaken. He trusts the Lord. He remembers the one he fears, the one he delights in, that he is all-knowing, that he is in control of everything, that he is all-powerful. So he trusts. He is unshaken. And the more that we know Christ, the more we understand who God is, the deeper our trust. I was talking with someone this week about, about faith and trust, and they had just came in and, and plopped down on a couch. And I, I asked them, I said, did you think about sitting down on that couch before you did so? And they were like, well, no, I just had, I assumed that it would hold me, right? And we all do that. We all have chairs and couches and, and, and uh, sofas and all these other things that we just plop down on, right? And the more that you do that, the more that you get confident that it's going to hold you. And you, don't, you get to the point where you don't even think about it. You just pull the chair out and you sit down in it. You walk up to the couch and you, lay, you sit down or you lay down in it. You don't think about it. In the same way as the believer, as the, the follower of Christ experiences Jesus more and more, it becomes just second nature to trust him. This is a maturing in the faith that happens. But we see a third thing here as well. Fear, he fears and delights in the Lord. He trusts the Lord. It also, we see that he is generous. That he is generous in his response to how God has been generous to him. It says in verse 9, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. Earlier in the passage, 
It says, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends. The psalmist and, and scripture, again, make it clear that the one who is righteous, the one that has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, the one that has committed to follow him with their life, that they have known him, that they, have, they draw closer to him, that they delight in the things that he delights in, that they trust him, that individual will be a generous individual because of what they have experienced. Paul is reminded of this text when he writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians. He is writing to them about generosity, and he is, as he does so, he is reminded of this picture in Psalm 112 that this is what, who what righteous people are. They are generous. And so he quotes it in 2 Corinthians 9, and then he expounds upon what does it mean for the righteous to be generous, to worship through generosity. So if you would, turn there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And we see right in the middle of that chapter the quotation Verse 9, as it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. Again, this is not a righteousness that we have earned. It is a righteousness that has been given to us. That's why it can endure forever, because it's the righteousness of God, the eternal one. But again, he, he quotes this psalm and says, the one who is righteous distributes freely. He has given to the poor. Paul uses this passage or this quotation to connect us to that psalm. But that whole passage of chapter 9 is an explanation of Psalm 112. It's, a, it's an unfolding so that we may see it clear. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time right here. What does it mean? What does it look like for the righteous to be generous? It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to understand it. Probably the most quoted part of this whole passage is the phrase that God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. That has been used forever in, in churches to describe someone who is generous and to compel others not only to give, but to give happily. But what does that really look like? How does that really come about? Well, first, the righteous or the cheerful giver knows God's sufficiency. Verse 8 of chapter 9 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The cheerful giver knows and has experienced God's sufficiency. Whether this is in physical blessing or spiritual blessing, the cheerful giver has experienced the reality that God is enough, that he provides all things, that he is the Father who knows how to give good gifts, and there is no need for anything else. They know that he's sufficient. They know he's enough. In connection with that, in close connection with that, the cheerful giver rests in contentment. 
going back to that verse that we just read, it says, so that having, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may bound every good work. Your, your translation may use a different word there, or like my ESV, it may have a footnote there that says the word sufficiency can also be translated as contentment. It, it can be translated as contentment. Now, contentment is something that's kind of tricky. It's something that we as human beings generally desire and yet we have a hard time of grasping. When you look at the world around you, much of the world longs and desires and chases after contentment. And they think that they will find that contentment in relationships. They think that they can find that contentment in experiences. If I just experience all that the world has to offer, or if I just travel enough and see all the grandeur of the, the natural world, or they chase after it in accomplishment. That if I can just gain enough things, if I can just do enough things, that I will find contentment there. Or they look for it in money. That if I can just earn enough, if I can just possess enough things, that I will find contentment. But what we, what we find instead is that when we chase after those things, once we obtain them, we find that they are empty. Once we obtain them, we find that they don't actually produce contentment. Rather, they produce more hunger. They are, as the nutritionists love to say, empty calories that we consume and then find that we still need more. The believer, the the follower of Jesus, though, finds something that is so elusive to the world, we find contentment. We find that when we pursue him and that we get grasp hold of him, that we need nothing else. That he is everything he has promised to be. And no longer do we have to pursue that, to earn that, but we can rest in contentment. This is part of what makes a cheerful giver, knowing God's sufficiency, resting in contentment, and, give, and the cheerful giver gives out of thanksgiving. We see in this passage in verse 12, it says, <clears throat> supplying the needs of the saints, but is also an overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Now, it's a thanksgiving that comes surely from the recipient, but it is also a thanksgiving of the giver. Throughout Scripture, we see that our response to a, a perfect and wonderful God who has poured so many blessings to us is a response of thanksgiving. And I hope that you've noticed or, or seen that as we've gone through all of these ways to worship, whether it's Scripture or prayer or creativity, or, or singing, all of these things are tied to thanksgiving. It says give a prayer of thanksgiving. It says sing out of thanksgiving. We give out of thanksgiving that when we understand what God has given to us, we cannot help but say thank you and to express that thing, that thanks in worship. And part of that is through, yes, generosity. 
Lastly, the cheerful giver knows God's sufficiency, rests in contentment, gives out of thanksgiving, and confesses the work of Christ. Going down to the, towards the end of that passage, it says that, uh, for, I'm going to start in verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also is overflowing in many thanksgivings. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. The cheerful giver in knowing God's sufficiency and in responding in thanksgiving attests, testifies of God's generosity towards them. They attest towards God's generosity towards them. Our generosity towards others, towards others, tells them of the goodness of who God is. And so we become cheerful givers. We become those that are generous and can worship through generosity when we dive deeper into who he is and what he has already given us. And then our generosity comes forth, not out of obligation, but rather out of a, as a, out of a confession of who he is, what he's done, and out of thanksgiving. This generosity not only testifies, though, it not only, it not only is an act of worship that that speaks to who God is and how great he is, but generosity has a way of working in the lives around us. We've seen this as well as we've studied worship and we've studied the ways that we worship, whether it be testimony or song or prayer, that when we worship, when we make much of him, while it communicates to God our great treasure, it also communicates to those around us. And so generosity works it has things that it accomplishes beyond, beyond just what we intend it to do at the beginning. Generosity, in generosity, we see that needs are met. We go, we go back to verse 12. It says, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints. Okay, he says it's not only that, but it is that. At least in part, the reason that we are generous is that we may take care of brothers and sisters in Christ, that we may meet needs. It does not take long to peruse through the book of Acts and understand that part of what the church does is care for one another. And so when you worship through generosity, you help meet the needs of fellow brothers and sisters. And in turn, at times, you're going to help meet the needs of those that aren't part of the family yet. And sometimes this is going to be, yes, it's going to be resources. It's going to be physical things that people need. Sometimes it's going to be emotional needs. That you're just there for somebody. Sometimes it's going to be spiritual. This last VBS that we just, we just got done with a couple weeks ago, it was made possible because of the generosity of our church family. It meant that some of our church family, yes, they sacrificed to make that happen. Some, some of them sacrificed resources. Some of you sacrificed time. Some of you sacrificed sanity. But you made it work. 
And you came together to give of those things because you loved those kids and you loved on those families and you wanted them to know the love of Christ and you met needs. Needs that many of you will never know the depths of. You will never know how, or the impact that you have made. In your time, by the giving of your time and your efforts and of your resources, when we are generous, needs are met. When we are generous, the church is strengthened. The bonds of the church are strengthened. Going down to verse 14, Paul is speaking of the outcome of this generosity that has been given by the church in Corinth. And in verse 14, he says this, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Paul says, not only have you met needs here, not only have you made God known, but you have strengthened the bonds of the church. You have created lasting relationships that are deeper now. And they are relationships that are not temporary, but they are eternal. When we are generous in spirit, when we give of time and of resources to the church, we deepen the bonds of the church and we are able to grow closer to one another, to give thanks for one another, to support another when they are in need your generosity now plants the seed of generosity in others that will bear fruit later. A few weeks ago, uh, well, almost a month ago now, uh, got the, the incredible blessing of, of doing children's camp again. And every year we do children's camp, we always, we always have this conversation. It's a recycled conversation that happens, but all the adults are standing around. Usually it's right before camp kicks off and we all look at one another and we start laughing and someone says, can you believe they let us run this place now? Like we remember all the pranks that we pulled. We remembered how, what goofballs we were and it's like now all of a sudden we're standing there and we're in charge and that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But we're there because someone was generous to us first we're there because camp made a difference in our lives. God used it to grow and to mature our faith. And for some of us, he used it to start our faith. And now, we, that, because that generosity of time and talent and gifts and resources was planted in us, now, all these years later, we desire to plant it in someone else. It is fruit that is born out of generosity. The church is strengthened and when we are generous, God, of course, is glorified. They long and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. When we are generous, God is glorified. I look around this room and I see those that are here and those that, and I'm reminded of those that have gone before us to be the Lord, and I am reminded of many who are generous incredibly generous. And when I, I think upon them, I surely, yes, I, I speak well of those individuals, but more so I thank God for what he has done in their life. I thank God for them, and I glorify him for what he, how he has used them. When others see your generosity, 
They will praise the Father. They will praise the one who has given all things that are good. In thinking upon this, then, as we've seen a picture of the righteous, that the righteous man, the righteous person, will be generous, that the one who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ will be generous, that we've seen the work of generosity, then we come to the choice of generosity. See, generosity, it is a choice at the end. It, yeah, it's an overflowing of the heart, and, and it shouldn't be an obligation, but at, but at the end of the day, there is a choice involved in whether we will be generous or not. First, we see that it's an act of obedience. Will we choose to be obey? Will we choose to be obedient? Chapter 9 starts with Paul writing uh, the specific context of this passage. He says, I'm sending guys ahead of me so that they can make sure the gift is put together and, and a bow is wrapped on it so that it's ready to go, so that we're not doing things last minute. He says, make sure this happens so that when we get there, we're not all embarrassed. The Corinthian church could have read that and said, ah, we're out. <laughs> We know what we promised, we know what we said, but we're, we're not doing that. All of Scripture, there, there are different commands and different pictures of, of the righteous, of the people of God being generous people. But at the end of the day, there has to be a choice in the individual heart to be obedient. At the same time, there's a choice for obedience, yes, but there's also a choice of worship. Will you be a cheerful giver? We've all experienced this, whether you've experienced it as a child or you've experienced it as a parent or just as maybe an outside observer. We've all experienced that there is a difference between those that do obedience with a frown and those that do obedience with a smile. There's a difference. There's a difference towards the one that is doing the obeying, there's the one that, that, towards the one that is doing the commanding, but there is a difference. It, it does a parent's heart good when you ask a child to do something and their response is, you got it, dad. Like that's a good thing, it's a good feeling and you see them accomplishing things and, and doing things that ultimately are for their good and, and it's a pleasure but it is far from a pleasure when you say, would you please do this? And there is a stomping of feet and a gnashing of teeth and a pulling of hair, which is why I'm losing mine. The same, the same is true with us and our obedience towards the Father. That he says, I want you to be generous, but we have a choice not only in whether we will obey or not, but we have a choice in our attitude about it. Will we be a cheerful giver who gives out of the heart, who gives out of thanksgiving, or will we begrudgingly hand over what is already his? You have a choice. And will it be an act of obedience? Will it be an act of worship? And will it be an act of the heart? Paul, just before he uses that phrase, cheerful giver, says this in verse 7. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, 
For God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a cheerful giver. I can tell you for certainty. I can tell you for certainty that God has commanded you to be generous. And I can say that without doubt. I can tell you with certainty that he has called you to do that, not out of obligation, but out of thanksgiving. That your attitude is to be a good, an attitude of joy in being generous. But what I cannot do is tell you to the extent that you are to be generous. That is between you and the Lord. What you are generous in and how you are generous and to what extent you are generous, that is up to God and you. That's a conversation that you guys have to have, not me. I can tell you to be obedient. I can show you that in the word. I can show you to be the grateful. But generosity is, is something that happens between the believer and his, and his Lord. We would point towards some would point towards 10%, but I'll be real honest with you, that is, that is a number that we have kind of arbitrarily picked. If you go back to the Old Testament and read where we gather that 10% idea from, if we go back and we really read the whole section of Scripture that that's pulled from, actually we should be giving 33% if we're going to hold on to the Old Testament standard. But the New Testament doesn't have any of that. The New Testament just says be generous. For some of you, for some of you it's going to look one way. For others, it's going to look another. For some of you, 10% looks impossible. But the Lord gives you conviction and contentment in doing this. And maybe he will grow that. That's certainly the picture we get in Corinthians 9, that he grows our generosity as we mature. For some of you, you would look at 33% and go, <laughs> we got this. Whether it's your time, your talents, your gifts, your resources, you're like, I, I, he can have it all. I'm ready. But that's between you and him. But it is a choice whether you're going to listen, whether you're going to ask. Paul concludes all of this discussion by generosity and in many ways the same place that we started. He says there at the end of the chapter in verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. We started all of this by talking about how, the, how generosity is a description of the righteous and the righteous are only righteous because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. Paul, at the end of this passage, loops it all back to that. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What is that gift? First and foremost, it is grace. It's grace. When we understand and accomplish generosity, it is, an under, it is out of an understanding of what he has done for us and what he has done is an act of grace. We did not earn his favor. We did not earn his forgiveness. We could not have accomplished salvation on our own. It is purely through what he has done. It is an inexpressible gift 
We sang earlier in one of our songs, there was a line that said the cost was him. The cost was his life, his body, an inexpressible gift that he has given to us. Thanks be to God for his grace. Thanks be to God that he supplies the means for generosity. That he has given us grace, that he has given us talents and gifts, that he has given us time. It is a common phrase that we hear in in Christian circles that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And that is absolutely true. But I find it true that he has parked his cows in your life. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he can do with his wealth whatever he pleases. But I have found that more more and more as I grow older, that he has parked his cattle in your life for you to be stewards of. The question is what you're going to do with that. But we can give thanks for his grace. We can give thanks that he has supplied the means. And we can give thanks that he has invited us to join him. It consistently blows my mind that God uses people for his kingdom purposes. When I think about my own life, when I think about how he has involved me, it it blows my mind that that he would want to use me to do anything. And yet he is a good father who says, come and join me. Knowing that it's going to take longer knowing that it's going to be painful at times, knowing that it, it's not going to be maybe as efficient if he just did it himself. But he desires to be with us. He desires to teach us. He desires to show us things. We can be thankful that he invites us to do this work with him, that we can worship through generosity. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. We're going to just have a time of response. We believe that when God speaks through his word, as he has done this morning, that we have a, the right, we have a, a desire, we should have a need to respond, just as we would respond in a conversation. Maybe this morning... The Lord is speaking to you about generosity and he's, he's working in your heart to say, this is where I need you. This is, this is what I would have. This is what would delight me. And maybe this morning you just need to ask him, Lord, what is it? What would you have me to do? Where would you have me to go? What would you have me to give? Maybe this morning you're here and you have never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we, you hear us talk about contentment and satisfaction and thanksgiving and joy and hope and peace and all of these things. And you're like, I've been pursuing those things, but I do not have them. This morning, he holds them all as a gift to you. He holds them as a gift to you. If you will simply confess your sins to him and commit to follow him with the rest of your life. If you will pray that this morning, You can know all of those things. If you do that, I hope that you'll tell someone. We would love to tell you what the next step is. How do we follow him after that?
Let me pray. Father, we come before you and we are indeed thankful. Lord, as we are reminded in your word over and over again of the great grace that you have shown us, of the great blessings that you have given us, of the things that, are, that fill our lives, Lord, that we take for granted over and over again, that, we, that you have provided out of your kindness. Father, I pray that you would help me, that you would help me to be generous as you have been generous to me. Father, I pray that you would, that you would go before us that we may know where you would have us to go. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.